0: Well, thanks for being with us today. We are grateful to have you here in Northridge Church, wherever you might be joining us from, whether that's from one of our our four campuses across the Rochester area, you're joining us online. We're grateful to have you with us. My name is Nate Miller. I'm a Webster campus pastor. In fact, I wanna give a shout out to everyone out in Webster. Hope you guys are having a great morning. And uh, we're just grateful to have all of you here. I'm excited to have an opportunity to speak with all of you this morning. And as we get started, I think it's safe to assume that all of us desire Uh, to improve in life. We all hope things will get better. We hope our lives will improve, and it could be in any number of different areas. It could be, you know, in a hobby that you enjoy. Maybe it's a sport you enjoy. Maybe it's an instrument you play. Maybe you play guitar, and you're like, man, I'm hoping to improve in playing the guitar. It could be in your relationships, right? You hope your relationship with your spouse gets better. You hope your relationship with your friends gets better, with your parents gets better. We hope that things will improve. Even spiritually, you may have goals that you want to grow and develop in your relationship with Christ. We all hope things get better. In fact, I don't know that I, I've ever met someone that had the desire or the hope that their life would get worse. I, I don't think I've met that person. I've never met the person that says, you know, what, over the next six months to a year, my goal is I want to I gain 40 unnecessary pounds and, and drive my blood pressure sky high so that I'm on the verge of a heart attack. Said no one ever, right? No one's planning to do that. I've never heard someone say, you know what, my goal over this next year is I, I want to blow through my emergency fund and I want to rack up $20,000, $30,000 worth, worth of debt. No one plans to do that. My wife Emily and I, we've never come through a year of marriage and said, you know what, we had a really good year. This next year, we want to try to do a couple of different things to chip away and erode trust in our relationship and you know, put our marriage on the brink of divorce. Right? No one, No one plans for their life to get Worse, we all hope things get better, but yet, why is it that so often the hopes that we have, the desires that we have to succeed or to get better, oftentimes those, they never happen, right? Or they, they don't come to fruition in the way that we, that we thought. In fact, I wanna ask you that question this morning. What is it that you are hoping for? What's one thing you're hoping to improve in? In fact, if you look at your sermon notes, hopefully you have those in front of you. You'll see that question at the top of your sermon notes. What's one area you hope improve in. So take a second, write that in. If you're using our Northridge Church app, you can punch it in with with your thumbs. And in fact, a little bit of a plug for our Northridge Church app. If you haven't downloaded that, it's pretty sweet. You guys should totally check it out. Uh, The sermon notes are on there. Connections cards are on there. You can watch our services live on there. If you're not able to attend one of our campuses, you can go back and watch previous sermon series. You should totally check out Northridge Church app if you haven't done that already. But as you're thinking about what is that one area, and it could be a big thing or it could be a little thing, one thing you're hoping to improve on. Here's what I want to help us understand about hope is that hope all by itself or hope alone changes nothing. Hope all by itself doesn't mean that you will change. Hope in action leads to genuine change. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Hope in action leads to genuine change. Hope can be a great catalyst for change, but actions are what's going to help us get there in the end. In fact, how many of you made New Year's resolutions just 1 month ago and now here we are in February and like those are long gone, right? You're not you're not pursuing those at all. Right? But hope in action can lead to genuine change. And when I talk about hope, I'm I'm not talking about like some passive wish. I'm talking about an active pursuit. Like this is something we're going to do. I'm going after this. This is what I am going to do. We're going to put hope in action. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about this idea of hope and action and how they go together. I love what, first, what it says in First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it says this, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So here we see this idea of hope, right? We're to put our hope in Christ. We're to put our hope in this future grace that we'll experience when Christ returns. But look at the beginning of verse 13. It says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Another way you you could translate the beginning of that verse is to prepare for action, exercise self-discipline. So we're talking about putting hope in action and exercising self-discipline. And let's just talk about discipline for a second because discipline is a word I think we're all familiar with. We've heard it. But how would we define it? What's a good definition? Well, I came across this definition from Craig Groeschel, who is a well-known pastor, church leader, and author. He defines it this way, and I think it's really, really good. He says it this way, that discipline is choosing what you want most over what you want now. Discipline is choosing what you want most over what you want now. I really enjoy playing golf. When it's warm outside, I love to play golf. In fact, I would love to play golf three or four times a week. But what I love most and what I want and desire most is a relationship with my wife, Emily, and a relationship with my three kids. So I choose what I want most over what I want now. Um, My wife, Emily, and I, we love to go out to eat. We love to try different restaurants, new restaurants around the city of Rochester, and we would love to do that. You know, several times a week, three, four times a week. But what we want most is to be out from under the financial weight and debt that would come with taking a family of five out to eat three to four times a week. So we choose what we want most over what we want now. And every single one of us, every day, we have decisions and choices where we can lean into discipline, live disciplined lives or or not. And when we put hope into action, that's gonna take discipline to do that. And so today, we're gonna be picking up the story of Nehemiah. We've been looking at the life of Nehemiah these last two weeks, and today we're going to see that that Nehemiah had some amazing hopes and dreams for Israel, for Jerusalem, but yet he didn't just have hope, he was willing to put that hope in action, and it led to genuine change, incredible change, not only in his life, but also in a nation that we're going to see. So I want to encourage you, turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. If you're using one of our Bibles, uh, one of our campuses, you can find that on page three hundred and eighty. Three, As you're turning there, let me kind of just recap to the, the story of Nehemiah as we've covered it so far. So we know that Nehemiah is an Israelite. We know that, that Israel was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Then the Persians came along. They took over the Babylonians. So now Israel and Nehemiah, they're living under the captivity of the Persian Empire, King Artaxerxes. And while Nehemiah is in captivity, slavery essentially, God elevates him to the position of cupbearer to the king. So this is an influential position, it gives him direct access to the king, and while he's serving in this position, Nehemiah's friends, fellow Israelites, they come to him and they give him news about the condition of Jerusalem, and the news is not good. Um, They tell him, the walls are are broken, Jerusalem is ruined, Uh, the gates have been burned down by by fire, nothing's happening, there is no no plan to rebuild, and Nehemiah's heart is, is broken, Right, because he knows that Jerusalem, that's the place where God was to dwell in the temple there, where who he is like was supposed to be put on display for people to see. But now Jerusalem lies in ruins, and so his heart is broken, and now he's an opportunity to come before the king, King Artaxerxes, and to put his hope now into action. And that's where I want us to pick up the story. And as we're going to see today... I want us to really kind of see three principles as we go down through chapter 2 together. Three principles from the life of Nehemiah that we can take into our lives today to help us put hope in action. And principle number one that we see from Nehemiah is that Nehemiah was willing to define the problem. He was willing to define the problem. He was willing to say, okay, here is the problem that we face, that I face, and he understood that. He was willing to be honest with himself. Look at verse verse 2 of chapter 2. So the king asked me, this is Nehemiah, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So this is an amazing, amazing, courageous response from Nehemiah. Nehemiah understood the problem and his heart was burdened for. Jerusalem. The king notices something's up with Nehemiah, and he just he says, Hey, what's going on, Nehemiah? What, what's going on? I can tell something is bothering you. And then Nehemiah is able to, to articulate what that problem is, right? The city walls, they have been broken down, the gates have been broken down. It's estimated, too, that during at this point in time, the walls have been broken down for nearly 150 years, and there was no plan. No, no one was seeking to rebuild the, the walls of Jerusalem. But here's what's really interesting. At first glance, it seems like the major problem facing Nehemiah, the major problem that's facing the nation of Israel was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, right? I mean, that's that's pretty clear. And while that is a very significant problem, it wasn't their greatest problem. In fact, we get a glimpse into what their greatest problem was actually back in chapter 1. If you look at Nehemiah 1, verse 6, we see this prayer of Nehemiah to God, pouring his heart out to God after hearing the news about the condition of the walls in Jerusalem. And look at what he says. This is Nehemiah praying to God. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant, Moses. This is a beautiful glimpse into Nehemiah's heart because he understood that their greatest problem, his greatest problem, the nation of Israel, their greatest problem, it wasn't an external problem. It wasn't the walls of Jerusalem. It was an internal problem. It was a problem within their heart. It was their sin against a holy and perfect God. And so he starts out by repenting of his sin and the sin of Israel. See, Nehemiah understood that something needed to happen first in his heart before God would do something great through him and through his life. Look, the reality is for each and every single one of us here today, our greatest problem, it's the same. For every single one of us here, our greatest problem is our sin against a holy and perfect God. And that sin separates us from God. And so we can spend our lives in really one of two ways. First, we can spend our lives trying to repair that relationship by doing enough good things, working hard, going to church, serving, giving money, all of these good things that we think try to make up the balance that our sin has created and that gap between us and God. But the problem with that approach is the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible tells us that really it's not about what we do, but it has everything to do with what Jesus has already done for us, that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died on the cross for our sins, bore the weight of our, the, the penalty of our sin upon himself. His blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven, and our relationship is restored and repaired when we, in faith, acknowledge that and say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died for my sins. Forgive me of my sins, and then I wholly surrender my life to you. I want to live a life of obedience, a life that demonstrates that you truly are my leader, that I am following. You see, for each and every one of us, our greatest problem is our sin against the holy God. Nehemiah understood that. He knew that that's where he needed to start by repenting of his sin, the sin of Israel. Then once we have that, then we're able to look at the other areas of our lives because none of us are perfect. We're able to look at the other areas of our lives and say, okay, God, here's what needs rebuilt. Here's the problem I'm facing, and I need your help. And what is that for you? If you are a follower of Christ, and you look at your life, and maybe for some of you, it's, it's your marriage. You look at your marriage, and as much as you don't want to admit it, you know it's not where it's supposed to be. For some of you, you never thought a substance would have so much control over your life in the way that it does right now. For some of you here, there's people that need to reach out and, and seek help for the depression that you find yourself in for the last weeks, months perhaps even years, but you haven't worked up the courage to be honest with yourself and say, here is the problem that I'm facing. Whatever that challenge is or that problem is you're facing, are you willing to be honest with yourself? You have to define the problem because here's the deal. You cannot defeat what you do not define. You can't defeat what you're not willing to define. So call it out. Make it clear. This is a problem. And from this point forward, things are going to be different in my life. I remember about a year and a half ago, I began to realize that there was a problem in my life that I needed to confront. And it had to do with the the way that I, I parent my kids. Emily and I, we have three kids. We have Olivia, who is seven. Landon's five. And Claire is three years old. And I began to realize that my reactions and my responses to my kids when they misbehaved was not what God desired. When they would misbehave, when they would act out, do the things that they weren't supposed to, I found myself quickly just reacting where I, I, I thought if I can just raise my intensity, raise my voice, that that would bring about the desired behavioral outcome I was seeking in my kids. And I, God began to show me like, that is not the way I want you to lead your family and to parent your kids. So I began to, to talk about that with Emily. I opened up to the guys in my community group, and I said, look, guys, there, there's a problem that I'm working on, and can you help me? Can you pray for me? Can you regularly ask, uh, how, how am I doing at reacting to, to my kids? And that helped. It, it was a tremendous amount of help, and I'm not there yet. I'm still a work in progress, but it took me getting to a place where I said, okay, there's a problem. There's a problem in my life, and I need to work on this, and I don't know what that is for you, Maybe it has to do with your relationships with the people around you, whether a coworker or a boss. Maybe it has to do with engaging more with your with your kids. Maybe you're struggling with inappropriate things online. Maybe it's the words that you use. I don't know what it is, but are you willing to be honest enough with yourself to say, okay, here's the problem I'm facing? Define that problem and say, okay, from, from this point forward, I'm gonna seek to make some some changes. Nehemiah was willing to do that. He defined the problem. And once we define the problem, then that leads us to principle number two, where we don't just seek to just run out and change and do things on our own, but we have to diligently seek God. That's principle number two. And Nehemiah lives this out so well that once we know what the problem is that we're facing, we turn to God, we seek God. Look at verse four of chapter two. The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then Nehemiah Then he prayed. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Right? I love this. Here was his chance, right? The king says, What is it that you want? Nehemiah's first response is to pray, it's to turn to God. I prayed to the God of heaven. And this is a pattern that we see throughout Nehemiah's life. We saw that in chapter one where he heard news of the condition of the walls in Jerusalem. What did he do? He began to pray. He spent four or five months praying. Now again, here he has another opportunity to share his hope with the king. The first thing that he does is he he prays. The moment he defined the problem, he diligently took it to the one who could help him. And maybe you've experienced that in life too. When you've bumped up against an opportunity or a challenge, a problem, God has used that problem, that opportunity to actually point you to him, to grab a hold of your heart, your perspective, where you begin to diligently seek God. And maybe it's even a good opportunity. Maybe it was the birth of your first child, and you held that child in your arms for the very first time, and you felt the weight of what it was like to, to be a parent, to be responsible for this life that you were holding. And through that, you began to realize, man, there are areas in my life that I know need to change, that I need to, I need to seek God. God, help me be the man, be the woman, the father, of the mother to this child that you desire for me to be. And you begin to seek God through the opportunity of becoming a parent. But sometimes it comes also, not in good opportunities, but through the challenges, more often than not, right? The, the hard, hardships, the heartaches in life. Maybe it's the eviction notice that shows up in your mailbox. Once again, you get that notice that rent is late. And finally, you say, okay, enough is enough. I need to get my finances in order. And you begin to seek God. And you begin to say, okay, God, what does biblical stewardship look like, and you begin to seek opportunities and resources. Maybe that's why some of you are in Financial Peace University right now, because you're seeking God. You're trying to understand this problem of getting your finances under control. Maybe for some of you here today, that's actually why you're at Northridge Church. Maybe life has gotten rocky and difficult, and you're searching for something, and through the the, the circumstances of life, you're here searching for answers. You're searching for God, and we just want to say we are so thankful you have found Northridge Church, that you are here. That's why we exist as a church, is to come alongside of people, help them on their spiritual journey, know who Jesus is, then once you know him, to then grow in your relationship with him. But when we're, when we're able to think about the problems that we face in life and truly be able to define them, it should drive us to seek God. It should drive us to our knees. It should drive us to pray to God. In fact, one of my one of my favorite quotes on prayer is from John Piper. It's there in your notes. It says this, Prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. And prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God and the confidence that he will provide the help that we need. Right, prayer reminds us that God is the one who is in control and everything that we need can be found in him. So define the problem diligently seek God and then that leads us to the this last principle that we see in the life of Nehemiah which is do the work now we got to do the work this is for some of us this is the hardest one right where we roll up our sleeves get our hands dirty pull up our bootstraps and we say okay let's let's do this let's go and I think for some of us we look back over over our lives right and in the rearview mirror is just nothing but failed dreams failed hopes failed desires that, that died because we weren't willing to put forth the necessary effort and work into seeking uh, that change. But we see that Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not afraid to work hard. Nehemiah is not afraid to do the work. And now we begin to see his hope turning into action. We begin to see the plan shaping. Look at verse 5. Nehemiah says to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me so I set a time. So Nehemiah, he gets permission from the king, but what I love in his request to the king he doesn't say, hey, could you send you know, someone or just send supplies back to, to Jerusalem and there's some people there, there's a remnant from Israel, like they really need help rebuilding the walls. No, he says, send me, let him send me. Right? It could have been so easy for Nehemiah to disqualify himself from being part of the rebuilding work that needed to happen in Jerusalem, right? After all, Nehemiah is a professional drinker. Like that is his job. He just tastes the wine before the king does, he doesn't know anything about masonry work, carpentry work, you know, engineering, you know, what all everything that would go into rebuilding the walls. It could have been so easy for him to disqualify himself. Plus, he's 800 miles away. He's in the city of Susa, but yet Nehemiah is like, no, God use me, and he asked the king, King, look, send me. I am willing to go. And I think, man, we can resonate with that, right? I'm sure there have been so many moments in our lives, where we've bumped up against an opportunity, but instead of leading out in faith and confidence, we shrink back thinking, man, I don't have all the answers. I, I don't feel qualified. I don't have the experience. And right on and on, the excuses come. But yet, Nehemiah, he didn't allow doubt to take over. He still leaned into it and said, I am willing to do the work. And then we see down through the rest of chapter 2, we begin to see the plan taking shape. Verse 7, we see that he receives letter, letters from the king for safe passage back to Jerusalem. Verse 8, he's also granted a letter that gives him access to the timber and supplies needed to be able to rebuild the gates of the city. Verse 10, he gets a, like an armed escort to be able to, to accompany him that journey, that 800-mile journey back to Jerusalem. Because he realized between Susa and Jerusalem were a whole bunch of people that wanted nothing to do with seeing the walls of Jerusalem restored. But then we see that Nehemiah finally arrives in Jerusalem. Look at verse 11. It says this, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because, I had yet, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. So we see Nehemiah, he arrives in Jerusalem, and what I love is, he doesn't just like jump right in and, okay, here we go, and this is, this is what we're going to do. He spends some time essentially just doing a loop around the walls, uh, around the wall of Jerusalem. So he just does a loop around the city. He inspects the walls. He inspects the gates. And then he brings the leaders and the officials together. And this is what he says to them in verse 17. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So now we see they begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And here's the beautiful part in all of this is that as Nehemiah worked hard, as Nehemiah was willing to do the work, God also worked through Nehemiah's life and his example to inspire a nation, to come alongside of Nehemiah and say, let's do this good work together. In fact, if you look at, at chapter three in Nehemiah, chapter three is nothing but a list of people that God inspired through Nehemiah's willingness to do the work. And you can see as you read through chapter three, you'll see the people who were a part of rebuilding the wall and what section of the wall that they rebuilt. But Nehemiah's willingness to put hope in action was a catalyst for change for Israel. And I think the beautiful thing for us is as the same is true for us today. As we work hard at whatever God is leading us to do, when we lead out in that and we're in tune with God's spirit, we're in step with what his word desires for us, as we work hard at that, not only is God doing a work in our lives, but he is also working in and through our example and our influence in the world around us. We have to realize when it comes to doing the work, this is so important, that that all that God wants to do in any area of our lives will be limited by the work that we are unwilling to do. All that God wants to do in any area of our lives will be limited by the work that we are unwilling to do. So whatever you're thinking about right now, whatever that that problem is, that opportunity, that challenge that, that you have before you, chances are... You've, you've tried before, right? You've tried to come up with a solution. you tried to work at fixing whatever that problem was. But you know what the difference is between good intentions and actually changing? It's doing the work with God's help. This is where real change happens because when we define the problem, we diligently seek God's help. We're positioning ourselves and we're inviting God in to help us as we work. As we work hard, we're in tune with God's spirit. So we're not working alone. We're not working aimlessly. We're not working, you know, without direction. No, we have God's help. We have God's direction. So what is it that God is calling you to work hard at today in your life? Maybe for you it's your influence and your example in the classroom, in the dorm room, in the workplace, where you know you could take some steps at being a better example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so you're thinking through, okay, my reactions, and what I should say or not say. Are you working hard at that? Do you want to know more about God's word and grow in your faith? Well, how is it that you're carving out time to do that? Are you willing to do the work? Are you working hard at that? Do you want your marriage to thrive, to grow? If so, are you putting your spouse's needs before your own, seeking to serve them instead of waiting for them to serve you? I know for me in my life, you know, when I think back, you know, to wanting to work on my reactions with my kids. One of the, the, the pieces of work that I needed to do was to share it with somebody and to share it with the guys in my community group. And that was a hard step to take, right? Because you wanna feel like our lives are all put together and I have everything in order and I don't have any problems and I have life all figured out. But one of the things that I needed to do was to be humble enough to say, look, here's a problem that I'm facing and invite people in to help me in that. And maybe for some of you, that's a part of the hard work that you need to do is to take something that you've been holding and hiding and instead bring it to light with people around you. Maybe that's a step that you need to take. I don't know what it is, but I know for every one of us, there are broken parts of our lives that need to be restored. And are we willing to do the hard work necessary to bring about the desired change that God wants to see in our lives? And I would just encourage you, so as you think through these three principles, right defining the problem, diligently seeking God, and then doing the work, which one of these three needs the most attention in your life right now? I would just encourage you to circle that one. Circle it in your notes. Which one of those principles that we see from the life of Nehemiah needs the most attention in your life? Perhaps for some of you, it's defining the problem, right? Of of really being a frank proclaimer of reality and saying, okay, here is the problem that I am facing in my life. And I've been trying to ignore it. I've been trying to sweep it under the rug. But you need to be honest with yourself and define the problem. Maybe for some of you, it's I need to begin diligently seeking God, and I've been working hard and working hard, but it's in my own strength with my own plan, but you haven't been seeking God's help, God's direction with that problem. Maybe for some of you, it's, man, you know what the problem is, and you've been praying, 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 but now you need to, to put your hope in action. You need to actually begin to do the work, and as you think about your life today, and, and what you desire to see God in and through your life, remember this, you don't just have hope. You don't, you have hope in action, inspired by God by diligently seeking him and looking to him for his guidance and help. And as you do the work, become resolute in your, in your determination. In the case of Nehemiah, the results shocked everyone that was watching. Right? The, the walls that had been destroyed for nearly 150 years, Nehemiah, through God's help, Nehemiah's willingness to put hope in action, they rebuilt the walls in 52 days. God did exceedingly and abundantly more than they could have ever imagined or dreamed. And the same is true today, that God desires to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you would ever imagine and dream. He wants to restore the broken parts of our lives. But the question is, are we willing to put hope in action? Are you willing to to follow the example we see here in Nehemiah's life and be willing to define the problem? to diligently seek God, and then be willing to do the hard work necessary. When we do that, that will, that will lead to genuine change in our lives for God's glory and for our ultimate good. So let's be committed together as a church to do that, to put hope in action this week. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your, your word, the truths that are found there. God, that can inspire us, that can guide us, and show us what it is that you desire for us. God, I pray that we would desire to be change agents in, the, in the, the places that you have us in our world, whether in our families or in our workplace or in the college dorm room or in our classrooms in high school and middle school, God, that we would want to be used by you and that we would be available and willing, just like Nehemiah was, to define the problem, seek you, and then do the work. So, God, we ask for your help, your strength to do that uh, for your glory and our good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.